to Hear the Word of God, the online and broadcast teaching ministry of the Rev. Eric Alexander. Now we are begun at this part of chapter 10, the practical application of the great doctrines which the Apostle has been opening up to us in this letter to the Hebrews the doctrines of the glory, the surpassing glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, his supreme worth as God's prophet through whom God has spoken to us as we were taught at the beginning of chapter 1, God who at sundry times and in diverse manners has spoken in time past unto the fathers by the prophets as in these last days spoken unto us by a son. So Jesus is supremely set forth as the prophet through whom God has spoken. He is also God's supreme and surpassingly glorious priest in whom God has made purification for our sins and secured for us an eternal redemption, offering a perfect sacrifice. He is also in the third place God's king and set forth here as the one of whom scripture says thy throne O God is forever and ever and the apostle is setting forth Jesus in these three great categories of which the reformers spoke so much as prophet priest and king to us and exalting him to a place of unique glory in this epistle. Now the exhortation begins at verse 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way which he opened for us through the curtain, that is his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. And verses 19 to 21, in a sense, summarize the conclusion we have reached about what Christ has done for us. And that can be summed up in the one phrase, he has given us access to God. That is what Christ has done for us in his death and the offering up of himself as our great high priest. He has given us access into the presence of God. And that means that we have in verse 19 a holy boldness now. Not a fearful, uncertain, wavering entry into the presence of God, but a holy boldness to enter by the blood of Jesus. That's the first thing we have. Since we have confidence. The word really means in the original freedom of speech. Now it means, you see, that far from being debarred from the presence of God and there is a sense in which I think one of the commentators is right when he says you need to be a Jew to grasp the sheer glory and mystery of this that far from being debarred from God's presence with a veil shutting you out and seeing only the high priest able to enter and that only once a year we are able now through Christ to enter with a godly boldness with a freedom of speech and we can come into the presence of God and speak to him as his children. This is the first glorious privilege of the believer. 
Secondly, we have a new and living way by which we obtain this entry into God's presence. The new and living way of which he speaks in verse 20 is new because it has been unknown before. It is living because Christ is that way. He is the one who has opened the way and he is himself the way. I am the way no man comes to the Father but by me. We have a holy boldness. We have a new and living way. We have a great high priest. That is one who secures and effects our entry into the presence of God and fulfills all that the best in the Old Testament priesthood pointed to, offering his perfect sympathy to us, a perfect sacrifice to God, and a perfect atonement for sin. And that is the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament priesthood pointed to in shadow. A perfect sympathy. We do not have a high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but one who was in all points tested like as we are. So we are able to come to him and find mercy and grace to help in time of need. He offers perfect sympathy to his people. A perfect sacrifice to God so that there is one sacrifice that never needs to be repeated. And a perfect atonement for sin so that he cleanses the conscience. So we have a holy boldness, a new and living way, and the great priest, verse 21, over the house of God. So we are able then to come into the presence of God. And from that basis, the apostle goes on to this threefold exhortation from verses 22 to 25. And we noted last week, uh, as we closed, that it is an exhortation to faith, hope, and love, the great New Testament trilogy. And you'll notice that in verse 22, the result of having this new and living way into the presence of God through the rent veil of the flesh of our Lord Jesus. The result of this is that we are summoned to three things. First of all, to love in verse 22, faith in verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. And then in verse 23, to hope. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful and to love in verse 24 and 5 let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works now it's an interesting thing at the beginning of this new section of the epistle to notice that these three themes are the themes of the remaining three chapters of the epistle which it expounds in chapter 11 the theme is faith and the apostle begins from towards the end of chapter 10 indeed and through the whole of chapter 11 to expand the theme of faith. In chapter 12 the theme is hope where the apostle urges us to run with perseverance the race that is set before us looking away unto Jesus the pioneer and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and so on. The theme throughout this is even through the chastening which God's people endure, we are to 
go on running the race with hope. And the theme of chapter 13 is love in various ways. It begins, let brotherly love continue. And verse 16, for example, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Negatively, keep your life free from love of money. It is brotherly love rather than self-love that he is speaking of. Well, now let's look a little more closely at these three exhortations which, in a sense, as I say, summarize uh, and introduce us to the rest of the epistle. The exhortation, first of all, to faith that is to draw near. Verse 21 of chapter 10 Since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Now these three exhortations in verse 22 and 23 and 24 are really exhortations to our Christian duty. The privileges that he has been speaking of before are all summed up in this word access. The glorious privilege of the children of God is that we have access into the very presence of God our Father. And the duty which goes along with that privilege is the duty of approach, of drawing near to him. Now this is a duty primarily to God and we shall see presently that the other two duties are A to the world and B to our fellow Christians. But first this duty is to God. And this approach is to be made on the grounds of Christ's broken body and shed blood, verse 19, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way which he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And it is to be made by those who have certain characteristics. And here is the detail of our calling as he urges us, let us draw near with a true heart. First of all, a single-hearted purpose. Let us draw near with a true heart. The word means a genuine, a sincere heart. And our Christian duty begins with drawing near to God with this single purpose in our whole Christian ambition, which is to be brought into the presence of God and to draw near to him. To be brought right into God's presence as the whole nature of our Christian life and experience. This drawing near is really what the Christian life is in fact all about. It's a very important thing for us to grasp, I think. We used to hear some of the uh, old saints speaking about people who were far ben with God. Have you heard that? Those of you whose uh, native heath is not Scotland may not know the phrase, but it's a very expressive one. People would speak about somebody who was far ben, and you know immediately what they meant if you know the language. They meant that this was somebody who had gotten near to God, who had drawn near to him, and throughout his life, this had been the great business of his life, drawing near to God. 
Now this is what the apostle is speaking about. A true heart. That is a heart that is genuine. And I think it's more than this. A heart that is set on one thing. A single purpose. That we might draw near to God. And have the kind of life which increasingly is marked by intimacy with him. But it is important, I think, to take the other side of this meaning, that it is a genuine intimacy. We draw near on the ground that there is nothing that is unreal. There is nothing that is fake. There is nothing that is pretended. There is nothing that is spirituality put on. Because, you see, as we seek access to God, there is nothing more fatal than that which is not genuine, absolutely true, through and through. And that's what he's putting his finger on. Let us draw near with a true heart, with utter genuineness and utter reality. Now, you will know, of course, that one of the places where we are most tempted to be unreal is precisely in this whole realm of drawing near to God and of being far bent with God. Do you know that it is of course possible for us to be more interested in the reputation for being far bent with God than the reality? And that's why he says, let us draw near, make this the great business of life. Since the great privilege of the gospel is access, the great business of life is approach to God. That's what Christian experience is marked by. But the great peril is that we can be more interested in a reputation for piety than the reality of it. And beloved, if there is something that we need to cry to God about, it is for reality. Reality in our lives. Reality in drawing near to God. Because, you see, in the presence of God, we are stripped of everything that is unreal. One of our greatest follies is imagining that we can pretend to God. And that everything that is fake and unreal and unnatural is not immediately burned up in the presence of God. There is a barrier and one barrier to our drawing near is this barrier of unreality. So he says let us draw near with a true heart. A true heart. Secondly with absolute confidence in the sufficiency of Christ's priesthood, with a true heart in full assurance of faith. And that implies with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. We are to have absolute confidence in the sufficiency of Christ's priesthood as we draw near, because another thing that can prevent us from drawing near to God is a lack of resting in the total sufficiency of Christ's priesthood and of the access that we enjoy through Christ to our Father. Now that can prevent us from drawing near. 
And so we have to rest in his blood, his oath and covenant and his righteousness, the sufficiency and finality of his once offering up of himself to us. And we must recognize that at the threshold of the holy place into which we are now being exhorted to enter, that we might draw near to God, there is an accuser who is going to seek to keep us from the presence of God. Keep us from being the kind of people who draw near, whose lives are marked by intimacy. And the accuser will seek to point to our own failures and our sins and our weaknesses and our hidden secret shortcomings. But you see, drawing near in full assurance of faith means that we are resting not on anything that we are, that we have no confidence in the flesh, but only on the finished work of Christ do we rest. And it's on that basis that we draw near to God. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. That simply means that we are totally convinced and absolutely confident in the sufficiency of Christ's blood. Thirdly, we draw near with our bodies washed with pure water. Now that's a difficult phrase. At the end of verse 22, our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. It probably refers to the inward and outward purification, which is symbolized in the ritual. Do you remember it? If you don't, you ought to look it up. We won't uh, take time to do so this evening in Leviticus chapter 8, where the priests were prepared for their service of coming into the presence of God and there was a ritual purification on the one hand they were washed outwardly on the other hand they had a sprinkling of blood in various parts of their body the tip of their ear their thumb and their foot and that was simply to indicate that every part of them was covered by the sprinkling of blood. And it may well be that this is what the apostle is referring to, that we draw near with the kind of inward and outward purity, not only a purity that is outward, but a purity that is inward in terms of our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. It may also be significant that the reference in Leviticus 8 is to the consecration of the priests for their office and the whole chapter is indeed concerned with this matter of consecration we are to draw near with our hearts sprinkled and our bodies washed with pure water with a consecration of ourselves to the Lord it may be that one reference is on the one hand to the inward cleansing of the conscience and on the other hand, to the outward symbolic cleansing of baptism. And it could be that what he is urging upon us here is not only the outward cleansing of baptism, 
but the inward cleansing of our conscience in the blood of Christ. So the first great exhortation is that we might draw near, and that is the primary thing, the great and primary duty of the Christian. I'll have a word to say about this whole question of duty later, but that is the primary duty in relation to God that we might draw near to him, that we might enter into this holy place, that we might come into his presence. Now that does not just refer, of course, to prayer, although it seems to me that it puts the privilege of prayer in a new realm altogether. When we have come through all these chapters in Hebrews and discovered the infinite costly way in God's grace that he has opened up access for us into his presence. If we have really discovered that, if we have found that this new and living way involves the rending of a veil, not just in the temple, but the rending of the flesh of our Lord Jesus Christ so that we might enter by that rent veil into God's presence, then we will not take the privilege of prayer lightly, as we so often do. This is the basis on which we are to think of prayer, you see. And when we come into the presence of God, the very first thing that ought to happen to us is that we should just be bowed down with a sense of the sheer mystery and wonder of where we are. Think where you are and how you have come to be there. The second duty is really a duty to the world. You notice that in verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now Philip Hughes, in that commentary on Hebrews that I've been commending to you, and um, which I think Mr. Melvin has sold quite a number of. Philip Hughes says, This refers not to some detached formula, that is to a confession, and the word really is confession, not profession, but confession. It is not a detached formula that he refers to, but the vital personal witness of the Christian believer. This hope that he has been given cannot remain dumb. It must speak and give a reason both to friends and enemies of its own existence. Now what he is speaking of here is the confession of our hope in Christ, of our confidence in him, you see, for the future, to a world which in this day, when the epistle to the Hebrews was written, and in our day, is a world that is altogether without hope. And the apostle says we need in relation to the world to live as those who have a hope to confess and to do it without wavering. Now the great danger these Hebrew Christians were obviously in was the danger of wavering. They were in the midst of a period when they were going through great spiritual instability. And what he is saying to them now is on the ground of all that God has done for you, of the covenant that he has made with you in Jesus Christ, you have a duty to confess this glad, unwavering hope before the world and to present the kind of life to the world that they are aching in a sense to see. 
That is a life that is gloriously certain. Not of self or of anything that belongs to the world of man, but utterly certain of God. Now that's the kind of confession of hope that he is speaking of in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Now think of what that confession means. Think of it, for example, in the life of the Apostle Paul. When he is in the midst of that shipwreck on his way to Rome and on his way probably towards the last period of his life, but as he goes to Rome, God appears to him in the night and assures him of his purpose, of his faithfulness to his promise. And the storm suddenly breaks, and it's in the midst of that storm that the world round about the apostle immediately panics. And these people don't know what to do. They don't know how to cope with the situation that they're in. And the apostle stands up. He's the prisoner. They are the captors. They are the masters, but the masters are running around like frightened little children. And the prisoner stands up in the midst of the boat like the giant that he was. And he says, he says to them, Sirs, I believe God that it shall be even as he has spoken to me. God has given me his promise and I believe God. Now that's a man who is confessing his hope without wavering, do you see? In the midst of the storm. And beloved, we live in a world that desperately needs to see that kind of thing. There is nothing more wonderful than to see this. Somebody was speaking to me just this week. Somebody I was seeing was not a Christian. And he teaches in one of our universities. And he was telling me about the impact that had been made to him on his life by a fellow staff member in the university where he works. And he said, you know, I saw it when he was going through what to me would have been a devastating crisis. He said, I think I would have contemplated suicide if I had been asked to go through what he was going through. He said, but do you know? He said, I watched that man over a period of time. And he bore himself with such an otherworldly, it was his phrase, an otherworldly dignity. And he said, I began to ask him questions. He had never preached to me, but I began to ask him questions. And the answer to my questions about how he managed to bear himself like this in the midst of such a situation, the answer to my questions was, was simply this, he said. He said, I believe God. I believe God. Now that's our calling in relation to the world. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. And beloved, that is not stoicism. You see, that is based upon the last phrase of verse 23. He who promised is faithful. And it is when a man has cast his anchor into the faithfulness of God and found himself being made stable because of that that he is able to bear this kind of confession before the world. Our duty to God, let us draw near. 
Our duty to the world, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And our duty to one another, verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works. I said I wanted to say a word about this question of duty. And um, some people find that the idea of duty is an idea that's rather inimical to the whole thought of love. How can you have a duty, somebody asked me not long ago, to love other people? How can you have a duty to love? Isn't love something that you either have or you don't have? Well, you know, the New Testament clearly doesn't think so because the epistle of John, first epistle of John, tells us, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Now, ought is the language of duty. We have a duty to one another. And I believe that we are weak in this realm of duty in the Christian church and in evangelical circles, especially in our generation. We are strong in the realm of privilege in every sphere of life today. We are weak in the realm of duty. And yet there is a whole world of duty that we owe to God, to the world, and to one another. And we need to be awakened to our duty. We often think, you know, of the duty we owe. What is the duty that we owe to Caesar, for example, in Jesus' teaching? Well, now Jesus says when they bring him this penny, you know, and say, whose superscription is this? He asks them, should we pay taxes, they say to, to Jesus. And Jesus says, whose superscription is that? They say, Caesar's. And Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now, have you noticed the second half of that sentence? We render to God the things that are God's. Do you pay your taxes because you feel that you would rather like to do that in a particular month? I confess to you that I most certainly do not. It's a matter of duty, but I do it because I have a duty to do it. Now, in our duty to God, precisely the same is true. We need to recognize that what we owe to Caesar, we pay to Caesar because it is his due. What we owe to God, we give to God partly because it is his due. Of course, because we long to and love to. But beloved, if our love should die or pass away for a little while, the duty is no less there. And that's something that we need to hold on to in days when our emotions may perhaps be very dead. It may be that God means to keep us in his ways in terms of duty. I was very interested to read a little while ago in one of the Puritans that giving his own testimony to this matter, he said... I did out of duty what once I did out of love until the love returned with which I once began to worship God. He was speaking about coming to worship. Now that's going to come at the end of this uh, little passage. There are times when people will say under certain kinds of depression or affliction, 
or trial. I don't feel very like going to church today or even sheer physical tiredness. I think I'll just stay in bed. My spirit doesn't feel as if it's going to soar to the Lord today and I'll be no use in worship, won't you? Well, the fact is, you see, at that point you have got to say, I have a duty under God, render to God the things that are God's. Now, this is a very important element. Notice it. In the considering of one another, we have a duty to our fellow believers. That is to the church, if you like. And it's a duty to mutual encouragement. Verse 25, encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now our calling, you see, is an, a calling to this ministry of mutual encouragement. And that's a calling that we all of us, beloved, frequently neglect. The ministry of mutual encouragement. Why do we not do it? Well, there are two things that the apostle urges upon us. One, let us consider. Two, let us congregate. One, let us consider. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works. That is, to think about it. How do you consider other people? How do you become considerate, as we say? Well, you think about doing this. Why is it that we do not have this ministry of mutual consideration and mutual encouragement and mutual love in the body of Christ? It's because we are not sitting down and considering. Now, what do we do when we do that? We sit down and we think. We ponder over something. Oh, I need to consider that, we say. If you ask somebody to do something and they're not very sure about it, I have to consider that. Well, considering means that you sit down and you think for a time about certain things. Now, when did you last sit down and think for a certain time, how can I encourage that brother there? How can I encourage that sister there? How can I stimulate them to love and to good works? Now that's something that we desperately need to learn. And we are so slow to do it. Well, I'll tell you the reason that we don't think about this so often. The reason basically, and we often give it away, don't we, when we say, when something needs to be done that we've left undone in this connection, we say when somebody has perhaps been sorely neglected. Do you know, I'm so constantly conscious these days of people with needs who are being neglected. One longs to be able to divide oneself into a thousand pieces and parts because there are so many people with needs that are being neglected. And I sometimes have said to people, I remember saying to someone in New Mills, here was somebody living right next door to you and the aching need there was. <coughs> and the girl said, well, you know, I never thought. Now, I've said that too, haven't you? I never thought. Do you know the reason we don't think? It's not that we're not considering. It is that mostly we're absorbed with considering about ourselves. 
People don't think because they're thinking about themselves. That's what the hymn writer was speaking about when he says, A heart at leisure from itself to soothe and sympathize. At leisure from itself. And there's nothing we need more than a heart at leisure from itself. Let us consider one another then how to stir up one another, to provoke one another. It's actually the Greek word, I I believe, which is used uh, to describe a heart attack. It's it's the word from which we get our word paroxysm. And uh, you see the point, of course. How can we stir up? How can we provoke one another to love and to good works? Now, the way that love is provoked is by being loved. With our Scottish reticence or whatever it is, but I don't think it's really Scottish reticence. I think it's our spiritual slowness. We are so slow in this realm, beloved, and we need to ask God to help us in it. Let us consider, let us congregate, verse 25. Do you see this duty? Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. Now, that is a clear command in Scripture about congregating. A congregation has a duty to congregate. And that means that we are urged in Scripture that we are to come together. And the coming together is part of our care for one another, do you see? This is one of the reasons that we come together. And when we come together, it ought to be an expression of this. When a congregation gathers together and hearts are just overflowing with love for one another and a desire for one another, and we long to see in each other a new depth of love and a new openness, to one another and a new glory in our good works. Do you see how practical this is? Stirring one another up to love and to good works. That's what a congregation ought to be. And coming together there is something when you, when you are in the midst of such a people as that. There is something overwhelmingly wonderful about gathering with the Lord's people. It is a good and pleasant thing, says the psalmist, for brethren to dwell together in unity. And this is the kind of thing that the apostle has in mind. But you will notice, again, not neglecting. Now, what you neglect is a duty. And here is another duty. As is the habit of some. Clearly, you see, in days of discouragement, as these believers were in days of discouragement, they were falling into the snare of not meeting together with the Lord's people. And when you feel that there is not much point in your going, that is probably the very time when you most need to come. 
And you see the point of the duty is further reinforced in the last phrase. All the more as you see the day drawing near. Now what's the day? It's the day of Christ's return, which is a day of judgment of which he's going to speak in the next passage. It is a day of reckoning. It is the day when he is going to bring us into his presence and inquire of us what we have done with our privileges. Now here you see is the sense in which we have to recognize these duties as before God at the coming of our Lord Jesus. Then from verse 26 we go on to the fourth warning passage and all of this is set in the context of another of these solemn warnings three of which we have seen already in this epistle. We just introduce ourselves to it this evening and we'll come back to it again. The first warning that we came across was in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, and that was a warning against neglect. Therefore, we must pay the closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The second in chapter 3 was a warning against disobedience and unbelief the hard heart of unbelief. And the third in chapter 6 was a warning against falling away. The fourth here in chapter 10 is a warning against willful rebellion. For if we sin deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now the warning in this passage is concerned with the peril of willful sin. If we sin deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful prospect of judgment and a fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. Now, it's rather significant, I think, that we come across two things this evening which are very unpopular in many evangelical circles today. One is the whole emphasis of duty. People say, don't tell me about my duties now. I want to love the Lord and serve him without any content of duty. And you will do that, of course, in glory. But so long as we are here in the flesh, beloved, we greatly need this concept of duty. The other thing that is very unpopular is the whole use of the question of fear in our lives as Christians as a stimulus to us. And that is a very unpopular thing. Don't speak to me about the fear of God. It's about the love of God I want to hear. Well, surely so. But you notice how part of the significance of these warning passages to believers who are in the midst of days of distress, depression, ready to waver and fall away, one of the ways in which the apostle to the Hebrews addresses them is in warning. And he adduces this whole concept 
of the fear of God in it. Now, that, I think, is one of the reasons that we all find it difficult to know who is he speaking to, we ask. Is he addressing these warnings to believers or to unbelievers? Are these to people who have fallen away altogether, who have never truly been saved or what? Now, one of the reasons, I think, that we are left with a certain measure of doubt, although we have tried to interpret these warning passages in certain ways, one of the reasons we are left with a measure of doubt is precisely this, that God wants to speak to us about how fearful a thing it is to fall into the hands of the living God, about the fearful prospect of judgment, verse 27. And this is the keynote of these warning passages. Now, why is that? It is because we need that note. God is speaking to us in these terms because this is one of the ways in which he stirs up believers in this world who are weak and sometimes inclined to drift away. And he does so by stirring them up with the prospect of the alternatives. And what an alternative, he says. If we sin deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful prospect of judgment and a fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. And again at the end, again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now it is obviously a very wonderful thing to commit yourself into the hands of the living God, but it is a fearful thing to fall into them. And the apostle is stirring up believers who are inclined towards carelessness and who are becoming careless about their life and about their commitment. He is stirring them up with these two areas of duty and the fear of God. You're listening to Hear the Word of God with the Reverend Eric Alexander, a minister in the Church of Scotland for over 50 years. To access more Bible teaching from Reverend Alexander, visit hearthewordofgod.org where your generous contribution will help us sustain and grow this ministry. That's hearthewordofgod.org. You could choose instead to mail a check to this address, 600 Eden Road, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 17601, or call 1-800-488-1888. This program is a presentation of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. I'm Mark Daniels. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time for Eric Alexander and Hear the Word of God.